Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Science Faction. The only show where a scientist, a comedian, and a comedian scientist come together to discuss science. Comedically. Hello, and welcome to Science Faction 658. Science Faction debunking Dunning-Kruger. And finally, smart people are agreeing with me. <laughs> this sounds like it might be the same article. Back to back. Um, it's like you're reading it twice. I was hoping the pun in that title came off well. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the Denny Kruger, like, like, don't tell me that that's bad science. Don't tell me that we've discovered that's bad science because I have felt so smug that, like, there's finally an easy explanation for, like, hey, idiot. And it makes perfect sense, which means that, like, if that's wrong, then my, then my perception of dumb people, like, 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 every dumb person is a hidden fucking Einstein now. No, let's not go... Let's not go that far. Uh, we'll get into all the specifics of it. It's actually super, super interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to cover it is one of our main stories. But speaking of the main story of this show, I, of course, am your host, comedian archaeologist, Robert Timothy. With me, as always, is my comedian, Mr. Damien Mercado. How are you doing out there, Damien? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, I'm actually a minister. I officiated a wedding yesterday. I heard. So... I heard. Did that go well? Yeah, it went well. You know, um, years of uh, my failed comedy career is your mm-hmm. is is your win is your victory when it comes to public sure. speaking because I've done yeah. all the embarrassment, so you don't have to allow me to be the jackass at your wedding. You spent many hours on a mic, so it is nothing new to you to pop on there and have some fun. Yeah, and then uh, you know, uh, hiring me as well, or any comic with a decent amount of hours under his belt as well. You know, he could probably draft up a speech that'll get some laughs. I was able to work the office, marriage, uh, like that. <laughs> Webster's defines a wedding as the fusing of two metals with heat. Uh, and this isn't even your first wedding that you officiated. You actually officiated one of our very, very close friends' weddings, I don't know, like like 10 years ago. Yes. And, and I was a groomsman. And for those of you guys who wonder, do you guys just fuck around like this on the podcast or is this something you do in everyday life? You'll be happy to know that right before Damien went on stage or I don't know, up to the altar to go do his things, I I told him, hey, listen, I know I know in your head right now you're thinking, don't say penis, don't say penis in the middle of a speech because you're worried about just randomly saying (laughs) penis and ruining two. Two of our friends were actually marrying each other. It wasn't like one of our friends. It was two close friends were marrying each other. One friend of the show. Very good friend of the show. (laughs) Yeah, and I was like... I was like, I know in your head right now, you're saying like, don't say penis, don't say penis, don't say penis. And you're like, no, I wasn't thinking that. And then as we were up at the altar and like they were coming down the aisle and stuff under my breath, since I was one of the groomsmen right next to the altar, I was going, don't say penis, don't say penis, don't say penis. <laughs> also, I I had just recently gotten a divorce then and like wasn't in a great headspace. And like, really, I, uh-huh. I feel like I could have done, I could have knocked it out of the park much better. But I was doing mm-hmm. everything I can to not be like uh, Adam Sandler and the wedding singer. Like, you know what? This is all bullshit. But uh, you could have bought a second fucking summer house with the down payment you're doing on this fucking wedding. Love's not real, everybody. It's all a mirage. And then <laughs> uh, stripped off my clothes naked and ran like a uh, uh, hundred miles home from the fucking winery. And if you want to be the wedding officiant who runs home naked from the wedding, go ahead and check out our Patreon. You can search Robert Timothy <laughs> on Patreon, where you'll get a whole extra episode of Science Faction every <laughs> single week. I am glad that I saved that closer for the wedding I did yesterday, because I didn't have it perfected until yesterday. Like, it, 
People were talking. There's a lot of buzz around the water cooler about my exit from the wedding yeah, last you, time. <laughs> I, I, listen, I, I obviously give you a lot of shit, but even I have to admit, you have really nailed that helicopter move. So it, kudos. <laughs> While running. That's not easy. That's like a whole, that's, not, that's a gyration. That's, that's it's a taking, rhythm thing. Yeah. And you, and by the way, do you realize how many hours you have to spend running naked for that? Do you realize how many arrests for running yeah. naked through your neighborhood that is? It's like when you see somebody who can run and do a hula hoop at the same time and you're like, I'm not saying that that should be an Olympic sport, but that is certainly a skill. Yeah, like that. Uh, that sounds like something like like if you had like a like if you were like some guy who just like sucked in bed and, and there was like some like Mr. Miyagi figure who like taught you taught you to have some motion in the ocean. Yeah, you just <laughs> you're like I need I need some kind of like uh, Dick Magi to come by and teach me the the ways of this. And you look outside while you're sipping your morning coffee, and there's a 75 year old naked man running, just helicoptering his penis as he does. And you're like, uh, I have I have found my mountain. <laughs> Just an old dirt bag from the 70s. Yeah, man, uh, I have quite a few notches on my belt. Uh, come back tomorrow, though. I'm pretty, uh, pretty drunk right now. <laughs> uh, dear, let's move right on to science articles. From molecules to particles, this is science articles. A true Marshall Fuxman. Uh, gonorrhea has no effect on that man. His skills are too good. Uh, don't man. don't fuck with a guy with cauliflower dick. I think that's <laughs> that's that's the old Brazilian saying. I think. Uh, uh, in a kind of Zen way, I only own nine items, and two of them are are crab combs for your pubes. <laughs> Uh, article number one debunking dunning kruger oh god i have i have given so many smug speeches don't don't tell me this is wrong (laughs) it looks like it might be damien at least the vast majority of the effect we're seeing this is a very very interesting development like so articles have come out in statistical papers for maybe the past year two years or something like that questioning Dunning-Kruger, and we're going to dive into it. So first, let's review it. Damien, why don't you give your, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't even call you a layman in this because we've talked about it so much on this show, but why don't you give your kind of unrehearsed opinion, what is the Dunning-Kruger effect? Uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically uh, how you think you're better at something than you actually are until you start learning in that, then you realize, oh shit, I really don't know that much. And the best example could be the person watching uh, an MMA match, a boxing match, uh, yeah. a football game, a soccer game, and they're like, how come he just doesn't punch him? Just punch him, man! Yeah. Like, that guy is the Dunning-Kruger effect. But then he goes into you know a gym and realizes how little he knows and his, his uh, confidence. Yeah, punching's goes down. really hard. Like it's really yeah. tiring to do. And yeah, well, so that's 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 a good overall example. The idea is kind of those who are least able or least skilled at something they overestimate their knowledge the most. Now, as you said, I think there is uh, some validity to it. The numbers back up. There is some validity to it. But what a lot of mathematicians have been calling attention to in recent years is the possibility that a lot of what we're seeing is actually an artifact of data analysis and how we analyze data. And we'll go into that. So let's go back to the original Dunning-Kruger paper. It's a very famous paper. We've talked about it a dozen times on this show, probably in the last year. It is a 1999 paper done by two Cornell professors, psychology professors, Dunning and Kruger, who looked at... Cornell. 
who looked at their <laughs> undergrads and uh, gave them a series of questions and then asked them, you know, how they thought they did. And they found that the ones who did the worst overestimated their abilities the most. And the ones that uh, tended to do really well tended to underestimate their abilities to a little bit or get, get fairly accurate in them. That has been replicated and found in a just a multitude of different ways. There's been a bunch of replication of this. So it's not like we're saying, hey, this is fraud or it's not true or these results aren't aren't true. They are. What these mathematicians are arguing is this is actually at least somewhat a relic of the way we do data analysis and, and the numbers themselves. So let's review the actual original Dunning-Kruger paper. They gave 45 undergraduate students a 20-question logic test and then asked them to rate their own performance in two different ways. They asked their students to estimate how many questions they got correct, which is a fairly straightforward assessment. And then they asked the students to estimate how they did compared with other students who took the test. Then, after giving the students the logic test, they divided them into four groups based on their scores. The lowest scoring quarter of the students got, on average... 10 of the 20 questions right, so 50%. In comparison, the top scoring quarter of students got an average of 17 questions correct. Both groups estimated they got about 14 correct. So anyway, the idea was that the top ones underestimated their scores and the low ones overestimated their scores. Those results, however, were more kind of substantial when they looked at how students rated themselves against their peers. So that was saying, how do you think you did on this test? And then this one is saying, how do you think you did versus the other students in the class. And that's where the low scoring students estimated that they did better than 62% of the test takers, while the highest scoring students thought they scored better than 68%, end quote. So uh, we, we have seen this result replicated over and over and over again in many different fields. As Damien said, even things like sports, it doesn't, these aren't just academic pursuits. These are things like sports. Look at the pandemic, what the conspiracy theory is. Most of the time we brought up, yes. up, up, up the Dunning-Kruger effect in the last year, it was in, in relevance to people's associate yes. virology degrees. Yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, what they what these mathematicians argue is when you see that huge gap, that huge gap of being in that bottom 25% of being, you know, in the in the 12, getting an average of 12% or so and estimating that you're 60, you did better than 62%, that's a huge gap gap because that's a huge gap to have. Whereas the higher you get up, the less able you are to overestimate your ability. Meaning if you got a 99% on something, it's almost impossible for you to overestimate your ability, right? Yeah. You can only do it with a one percentage point difference. And so when we look at these numbers, it's kind of a way, it's kind of saying it's a way we think about numbers more so than the actual estimation. Because if you're lower Anytime you estimate you did something, so let's say you were in the bottom 10%, right? This is the lowest of the low. If you uh, imagine you did better than anybody, so you put yourself at like 51% or something like that, 52%, that that difference is now 40 points, which is almost impossible for anybody who scored competently to get, right? You'd have to be down in the below D range and estimate you did better than 99% of everybody in order to get that. And so what they're saying is, yes, do people who are... Uh, well below average, overestimate their abilities. Yes, but 
Everybody does. So we all are subject to this bias called the better than average bias. The most common thing is if you talk to your average driver, they will all say that they are better than the average driver, or at least most people will. Infuriating. Infuriating. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> There's this huge bias to assume that we are better than the average as an individual. Uh, I, as an individual, am better than the average at any given thing. So these people who aren't doing super well, they kind of know they're not doing super well. However, they still think they're better than the average. They're uh, estimating themselves at a just above, you know, 50. It's still a D minus. 62% is still a D minus. If you're, if you're grading on a curve, I did better than 62% of these people. You're still grading on a curve. But the difference between that guess and where you are is impossible for somebody who scored 70%, which is like, you know, C minus. It's impossible for them to get that because there is no upper limit that goes up that high. And so, yes, we are seeing that. But what they're arguing is what you're seeing is is less of kind of what we typically think of as the Dunning-Kruger effect and more of just a, an offshoot of the better than average bias, meaning we're seeing everybody thinking they're better than average. But if you're 99 in the 99th percentile and you think you're better than average, you are and you're not wrong. And so when you guess, there is no differentiation or sometimes you're underestimating, as we see in Dunning-Kruger, right? You're underestimating where your score is, but you still think you're better than average. So it's this idea that we all view ourselves in any given topic as being better than the average. But when you look at the lowest of the low, that becomes a huge difference. Now, that doesn't mean that those people aren't still drastically overestimating their abilities, that the people who are at the lowest are the ones who are overestimating the most. What they're saying is it's more of that better than average bias. And just the fact of the way we collect data and the way numbers work, you cannot get that difference from anybody else. So it, by definition, will always be the biggest difference between the lowest performers and their estimates. How far is it off to say, like, let's say uh, you're, you and I are, are Boy Scouts, Bobby, uh -huh. and you have gotten all of your merit badges. There's right. no more merit badges for you to get. So for two years, I'm averaging much higher merit badge gains than you are. <laughs> you're like, you're averaging zero a year, whereas I'm getting like three. Well, that'd be if we were doing gains, and this isn't necessarily gains, right? This is abilities. Because I get the gains, sweet gains. That's you, all you about get those the gains, sweet gains, bro. Yeah, I've read that about you. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah this is this is about ability, not necessarily like not necessarily your improvement on anything. An uh, easy way to think about this is the here's a quote from the article: the worst test takers would overestimate their performance the most because they are simply the furthest from getting a perfect score, so they have the biggest gap to overestimate. Additionally, the least skilled people like most people, assume they are better than average. Finally, the lowest scorers aren't markedly worse at estimating their objective performance. I'm going to end the quote there and, and talk about what that means. When they actually did some follow-up research, and this is what the few things that these particular researchers did, number one, they put up data sets that were just randomly generated by an AI. If we asked these students, uh, how did you do overall on this test? How did you do compared to other people and what your actual score is? Those are three data points we have for each individual, right? They did the same thing, but they just gave three random numbers. They just signed three random numbers to, to fictional individuals. When you do that, again, these have no correlation to individuals and their psychology and what they think. You still see the Dunning-Kruger effect because those random numbers have the ability 
to be high, right? Like if you score, just like we talked about, if you score lower, you have a bigger gap to be able to overestimate and just numbers by random chance will show a very similar effect. Not all hmm. the way. There is still like some percentage. We think that number is in the maybe high single digits of people who really do consistently just nonstop think they are always better. Uh, they're way, way, way better at things uh, than so they actually are. I'm so jealous of those people. I'm so I am fucking too. jealous. I mean, we, you and I have met many people in, in a variety of industries and jobs yeah. who, who like, I wish I had that confidence, man. I wish, I yeah. wish, I wish like when I looked in the mirror, I saw the Brad Pitt of whatever profession. It's like, oh my God. I could conquer the world. In a way, they live in the Matrix, right? Like, they live in the Matrix <laughs> where they're good at everything and no one ever, they never find out they're wrong. I walk around, like, my wife catches me all the time, like, like with, like, self-hate, like, Damon, you're an idiot, shit. Like, like, yeah. like I, I talk shit to myself, like, and, <laughs> and, like, I'm embarrassed when I'm caught. Like, like, to have the opposite, to have, like, you're great, you're the best. Oh, man, that dick, did you grow three inches today? That's crazy. Well, so then for a second thing to evaluate their, their self-assessment, uh, here's another quote. They gave students a 25-question scientific literacy test. After answering each, each question, the student would rate their own performance on each question as either nailed it, not sure, or no idea. They found that unskilled students are pretty good at estimating their own competence. In this study of skilled students who scored in the bottom quarter, only 16.5% significantly overestimated their abilities. And it turns out 3.9% significantly underestimated their score. That means that nearly 80% of unskilled students were fairly good at estimating their real yeah. ability. A, a far cry from the idea put forth by Dunning-Kruger. And so what they're saying is if after every question you ask them, how did you do on that particular question? They are pretty good at telling you, I think I got that one wrong, or I might have gotten that one right, or I definitely have no fucking idea, right? They are pretty good at that. It's when you overall look at them that that, you know, better than average bias comes into place. And it's where they're not object. They're not saying, did you get this more right than everybody else in the class? It's just, did you get this question right or not? They end up being much, much better at that. Again, there's going to be certain personality types, certain things going on that really do follow that more standard Dunning-Kruger model. And it may, st we may still find out that this varies in different times and different places. Again, as you know, you've pointed out a lot of times it does take some level of expertise to realize how bad you are at something that do who's in the bar yelling at the boxer on TV uh, that he's not doing it right. The second he walks into a boxing gym, he will pretty quickly realize that he is not as good at coaching as he thought he was, nor at boxing itself. The, the craziest thing is just how many dudes think they're a badass, like, like, and, but like, honestly can't throw a punch to save their life. That's, yeah. uh, like, that's that, like, there's something like, yeah, I'm, you know, I played high school football and yeah, it's been 20 years, but I'll beat your ass. Yeah, and then sometimes you get people who uh, like don't even even the small amount of training they have make no difference. If we're still referencing boxing, just go ahead right now, everybody, go go online and find a video of uh, the sports announcer Stephen A. Smith hitting mitts. Uh, so he apparently was learning boxing. He's a rich man. He he had good trainers, all that stuff. He filmed this. He then watched that film and decided, yeah, this is going online. People are going to see what a badass I am. And honestly, if any one of you have like a three or four year old daughter, put boxing gloves on them, hold mitts, and they will do a better job than Stephen A. Smith does in this video, which he filmed, looked at, and posted online with full confidence. You know, he's not as bad as Stephen A. Smith, but Sean Hannity did kind of a thing. And apparently oh, really? behind the scenes, Sean Hannity regularly brings up that he does MMA. 
but like really, he's just a rich guy who pays Chuck Liddell to like you like kind of like uh, kind of punch drunk delivery. You hit the bag, like like yeah, it's. But but he's somebody who drops it regularly, like he's a badass. I I think Stephen A. Smith would do the same thing. But hey, we're not a sports or or conservative podcast. Sorry, sorry, fans. Very, very interesting. It'll be interesting to see kind of, you know, what further research brings up in terms of how much of this is a mathematical artifact, how much is real, what categories is it more pronounced in, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, But some of it, at least some of it, may end up being that kind of mathematical artifact because otherwise we wouldn't see it replicated in random data sets. That tells us a little something Hmm. about what's going on there. I wonder if it's it's just, you know, more informal because I, I will say... I know a lot of D students. I've yeah. I sir have been a D student, and you sure. sir, I know D student. No, but no. like D students tend to know where they're at. Like like they don't put a lot of emphasis on the school stuff. Like like yeah, yeah I I know when I got a question wrong. I know when I'm going to fail, and I'm not afraid of it because I've done it a lot. But I think when you take it, and I don't know, uh, but but when you take it outside of the uh, maybe like a standardized testing environment, testing environment, maybe like yeah. you got to do the controls where like you're just casually talking about politics or science or whatever. Well, the other thing to to talk about, and they do bring this up in the article, is the difference between lack of knowledge and misinformation, right? Mm. And so if, uh, I think they use in this case the the idea of like the capital of of Scotland, right? If you just, if you ask somebody some random question, like how do you say some this in, in German, right? And they're not a German speaker. They would probably admit to you, I don't know, right? If you ask somebody, what's the capital of Scotland? And they say Glasgow Edinburgh. because they just, yeah. Oh, I do not know. I have a daddy. <laughs> right. No, no, no. It, it is. But, oh, but if, oh, but if somebody just goes, <laughs> right, they have, they have the wrong idea in their head. Then they'll still answer with confidence, right? And you say, how confident are you? And they're like, oh, 100. Or a better example for those in the United States might be New York. You know, what's the capital of the state of New York? And you might be like, oh, it's New York City, of course. You know, well, that's the only thing that makes sense. Right. And then somebody says, how confident are you? You're like, I don't know, 95% is fucking New York. What are you talking about? And they're like, actually, it's Albany. And you're like, oh. So that's more of an issue of like misinformation getting in the way of your ability to judge what you do and don't know. And that, I think, has a lot more to do with what we saw going on in the pandemic with these these, you know, mm. upstart virologists who who suddenly knew all this stuff. It's because they were getting bad information from sources that they trusted, not that they didn't have any information. Now, I'm not saying this leads into Dunning-Kruger, but I think a lot of these people like 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 your stances on quote-unquote freedom. <laughs> yeah, I think sure. like I think I think a lot of people were very primed to believe the misinformation, like their their sure. resistances. And I don't know where that stacks. It's that's personal bias, I guess. I, well, I don't not know just where. that, but we all we have a whole thing where we look at, you know, political biases and how suites of political ideas that are aren't always connected in ways that are logical or reasonable get transmitted because of culture and that, you know, the what you believe has a lot more to do with the people you interact with than any kind of inherent beliefs that you have, right? And you can be swayed to any of those based on that. And so a lot of those are, hey, here is this political package we have and you got to take everything, right? And and because we get in a less and less tolerant environment to those with different political views, if you don't believe every part of this, there's something wrong with you. And so then, yeah, some of those would be, right? Well, whereas if you were to have marketed that differently, right? If let's say in the pandemic, President Trump came out and said, the good Christian thing to do is to get a vaccine and stay away from people because we don't want to kill our elderly people. That's a Christian value is to take care of them. That also would have fit with existing conservative values. And that could have been packaged and taken in by the populace. And it just turned out not to be. 
I've been listening to some uh, uh, historical reviews on uh, on Protestantism and that vein of like uh-huh. Protestantism. It's, that's very different. You know, that started in the Thirty Years' War. That vein. And sure. It's, I, I I see what you're saying. Which I see what you're saying. Sure. I just don't think it matters. Like like we are current Christian conservatism believes that having homeless cities, things worse than Hoovervilles, literally spring up all across the country. That's that's Christian compassion. That's just an artifact of the historical package those people were given, right? Mm. If you would have changed that narrative from their trusted sources, and we've proved this over and over again with numerous examples where you isolate groups and you can get the most liberal people to adopt the most conservative opinions and vice versa, no matter how staunch they are, as long as you present it as this is what everybody on your side is doing, and if you isolate them away from news sources and stuff and, and alter the news sources they're getting, they will go automatically to that end. To the degree that you can get people to to take on the opinions or the the, the standpoints of the exact opposite side. Yeah, people are very factionalized, and they don't really yeah. l- read what they're. They don't get to the the. Uh, uh, they're very reactionary, and they don't look at the the real reason of things. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. We're Americans. We we're spoon fed things. Absolutely. Just remember. Just remember the the initial gun deregulation platform was hardcore left Black Panthers, right? Think of mm-hmm. think of that, right? The group that made up what we would now consider the further right than the NRA would allow you to get a gun club card. Like that group was started by far left, it, it, vice versa, yeah. right? So so those those opinions go back and forth. And and, 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 and our assault weapons ban was only yes. in reaction to, only, to the Black Panther. Only, only because of them. That the, uh, the only assault ban in history was enacted because yes. black people adopted a what we think of now as a conservative mindset on guns. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So if in the state we are sitting in, Damien, if we were around 50 some odd years ago, the far left policy was absolutely no gun regulation. This is the only way we get equality. And the far right gun regulation platform was we need to regulate the shit out of these guns, even though we haven't done it in 200 years. Yeah. OK, so we have a guy who's advocating rifles. All right. What's his name? Huey P. Lewis. All right. I like that name. That's a good old boy name. Let me see a picture of him. Oh, shit. We got to do something. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Article number two. Finally, someone understands population decline like I do. Like, 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 like you do, like, 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 a, like you see it like a beautiful mind, like you see it in a deeply autistic way, like, like. yeah. And then I just start murdering people. <laughs> Let's see. I, I, I eliminate every other the population in every other country. It's more arbitrary. You're Thanos at that point. This is uh this is a, an opinion piece, so not not a research article out of Scientific American this week, and I'm gonna go ahead and and come right out and say I am biased because I have been yelling about this for years. I have been yelling against economists and demographers and Elon Musk and everybody else who is constantly sounding the alarm that population decline is a horrible thing that must be stopped at all costs. I have been yelling about a decade at least I have been talking about this. Apparently that's a huge I was listening to a podcast recently and like <laughs> over the last decade probably uh, it's been a huge uh, it's been a huge motivator in Silicon Valley uh, Elon Musk is is quietly a member of this group. That's why he has ten fucking mm-hmm. kids that we know mm-hmm. about. Peter Thiel. Yeah, yeah he, there's like a little cult of uh, Silicon Valley tech bros who are who are like we must re. And then they're also very eugenicist because like it's it's they don't want the rabble reproducing. It's all of us must. If each of our line has has eight kids, uh, sure. then within a hundred years we'll have outpopulated the. It's it's reverse idiocracy, I guess. Yes. 
as I would point out, by the way, I've pointed out this a few times. Everybody who doesn't want to have kids with their sister is a little bit eugenicist. So let's not let's not paint too broad a brush. I think I think I think maybe for that one, I feel like family just for like long. You should be forgiven for that one. But after that. I'll fuck it all. I am very open. I, I <laughs> got picky. My sperm doth land where it lands. Yeah, so so I've been talking about population for a long time. I think when people say, oh, we're going to get underpopulated. First of all, we're not on the route to overpopulation. We are well past overpopulated as a species. The planet's on fire. Yeah, well, not just our carbon emissions, but there are things that we can't take back, right? So we've talked before about how if we figure out fusion, we can pull carbon back out of the air. There's a possibility. It doesn't mean that that's going to happen. And I hope to God it does, but it doesn't mean it's going to. But there's math that we're not doing right because we're spending on a credit card and pretending that it's our paycheck, right? So if we grow food, if I grow an ear of corn and then I eat that ear of corn and that supplies me for however long a time, Great. A complete circle. Assuming that the runoff isn't damaging the earth, assuming that we can fallow our fields, assuming all that works. Great. Fine. I'm in it. What we don't realize is that we are spending on a credit card that is not that corn that's regrowing, especially in the oceans. We are overfishing groups. And when we overfish them, that shit's not coming back. Those things are dead. Those huge schools of fish, they're gone. The whales, they're gone. The, the crustaceans, they're fucking gone. And we are spending on that credit card, spending on that credit card. Seven out of 10 human beings on the face of this earth get the majority of their protein from the sea. Meaning that when that credit cards expired, seven out of 10 people don't have a place to get that protein. And nobody seems to be worried about that. We are emitting tons of greenhouse gases into the air. And the more people People who we raise out of poverty, which I think is a noble goal and something we should constantly be trying to do, the more those greenhouse gases go up in an exponential fashion. So we are overpopulated. We're not on the route to overpopulation. We're not near it. We are well past it. And the only way to solve this, in my personal opinion, and in the opinion of the current Scientific American article, is to knock those populations down to what are sustainable levels, to bring them down to areas where you can just fish in a sustainable manner. We are not taking any more fish out of the sea than are born every fucking year, so therefore we are not spending on that credit card. We are not sending fertilizers from all those fields we aren't letting fallow down into rivers and killing half the Gulf of Mexico with huge dead zones. We are not shoving greenhouse gases into the air with no ability to pull them out currently and no no power to pull them out. We need to get to a point where we can reach an equilibrium and only then would we not be overpopulated. By the way, even then, we then still have to make up all the damage that we caused when we were hmm. overpopulated, but at least we could do it in a sustainable fashion. And that's just one problem. Like like when you calculate microplastics, forever chemicals, yes. you, I mean, you can go yes. on. Like it's so many bells cannot be unrung. Yes. Now, the doomsday sayers aren't like totally baseless in this. When you hear the people who are worried about population decline, there are real damages that occur. Number one is every single major economy is a growth model based economy. Every single one. And that needs to change if we're no longer in that growth model. But guess what? Economies change. Will it be hard? Yes. Will it be hurtful? Yes. Will people die because of it? Absolutely. Anytime you damage an economy to that extent, that's a problem. And with an aging population, who is going to take care of all the old people? Well, hopefully we get some fucking good robots in that time. Who's going to be the workforce? Hopefully we won't have to because we'll have AI and those great robots. But the point is, there is no such thing as sustainable 
accelerated growth that never stops. That just is not realistic. And frankly, well, not only better have tell we... capitalism that because the whole model is built upon that. <laughs> that is what the whole model is built upon. And that's what a lot of these people are worrying about that. And, and there are, again, there are very real things of, you know, who takes care of all of the 80 year olds when there's only a couple of 20 year olds. And, and that's a very real issue. And hopefully that gets solved by technologies. But the, the fact of the matter is we can't just keep going, well, fuck it. Let the kids handle it. It's insane that we've been putting essentially everything on the earth credit card and expecting the next generation to handle it not just that but by the way also space wise you know we get uh, a little bit jaded here in, in places like the u.s or other places like new zealand that have plenty of open space but there are plenty of places that don't and what that means is we've uh, completely eliminated elements of the natural environment i not only think that we need to kind of you know shrink our populations but shrink our populations into urban dense areas so that we can allow a lot more of those natural areas to come back so that we can have a more sustainable, maintainable ecosystem that includes forests and fucking prairies and wetlands and all the shit we need to keep the world going. Yep. Uh, it's going to take a fucking revolution. And uh, uh, honestly, I'm, uh, it's, I think it's going to come to you late, but I'm very confident that the generation, that the, the Zoomers and everybody beneath, I mean, they're the one, they know that they're being handed a flaming world. I personally think uh, if, if you can, it, run, run for office, be angry. Uh, and uh, or, I, I don't or just think don't have work a lot of outside kids. the system, like, burn I mean, it down, firebomb everything. That's the other solution. <laughs> What, but I mean, or just don't have kids, right? Like, the, here's the way it works. If you don't have more than two kids, then you're not increasing that population. And hopefully some will have even less and you go down and down and down. Again, by the way, lower populations mean more resources per individual person. It means higher ability to attain educational status, vocational status. Women get to go off into the workforce or go pursue their careers if they want to instead of being saddled with children. It means that we don't have those children who are, you know, in these poor countries that are starving to death because every child we have, we actually want and we're going to take care of and there's a plan for it and a safety net. And all of that happens, honestly, just by people slowing down. Now, in China, they forcibly slowed down to the one child policy. But what we see is even when they relented, people there got used to a much better life. They were granted a much better life because the resources that used to go to eight kids now went to one. And the women who were able to go to school and go into the workforce, all of a sudden they were like, we're not going to give this shit up just to start popping out more kids. And it turns out that the greatest revolution they ever had was just deciding we are not going to go back to having a ton of kids, even when that one child, one, one child policy was lifted. So, Yes. Will there be economic changes? Absolutely. The biggest change, though, it just involves the individual person taking responsibility for not having a ton of kids. Yeah. I mean, just like as with pollution, yes, individual responsibility is important. But but I don't know. As with most of the grand problems right now, I feel like that's uh, uh, one of the things the system likes to defuse responsibility that for that that it's the machine causing this, and it likes to put off like, hey, you, the consumer, you need to buy your your need to you need to drive less, or you need to like it's uh, you need to stop having kids, and we do need to stop having kids. That's why I sure. got rancid sperm. That's I, I didn't have it. I fucks I fucked a manhole, and this is what happened. <laughs> but the difference in that is that the government, you know, or larger organizations and stuff are still polluting. They're still doing stuff. Large organizations and governments are not having children. Individuals are. In the end, it will be individuals who choose or don't choose to save the world with this. It's not you know it's not a system that's forcing them. It's just their choice. So go check out that Scientific American article. Absolutely awesome. I overthrow awesome. the Thank system. You. Thank you so much for joining us for Science Faction 658, where you learned all about debunking Dunning-Kruger and how somebody finally got population right. Thank you so much for joining us, and come on back next week for Science Faction 659. 
No joke. Overthrow the system. Read a book. Uh, uh, run for office. Do something. Fuck, man. Earth on fire. You've been listening to Science Fiction. Wait, that's not right. <laughs>